Good morning, North Star Church. Amen, amen. For those of you who don't know, do not know me, my name is Pastor Troy Gauze. I am a church planner in New Orleans, uh, and our church plant is called Cross Culture Community Church. And we also have a homeless and addicted uh, community outreach called Church Without Walls, New Orleans. And uh, if you guys don't know that, you guys are a vital part of that church plant and that outreach. How you guys has, have partnered with us and came alongside us and sent teams down to help us evangelize and help us uh, uh, further the ministry is, has been a, a vital, a vital uh, lifeline to our ministry. And for that, I want to say thank you. So let's give yourselves a, a, a round of applause this morning. Amen. Amen. Uh, Andrew told me I was on a, a time limit. He told me I was on a time limit. So I, I'm, I'm going to cut down the small talk and kind of kind of get into it. Because you know what? You know the biggest lie ever told by a Baptist preacher? The biggest lie ever told by a Baptist preacher is this. I won't be before you long. That is the biggest lie told by a Baptist preacher. Amen. And the second biggest lie told by a Baptist preacher is I'm about to close. And, and, then, and then you find yourself there after about the fifth closing. And you're thinking to yourself, Piccadilly line is steady getting longer and longer and longer after all of these closings. Amen? I want to uh, just give you a little insight about me. I am an information junkie. I, for some reason, I just love information. I love soaking in information, and sometimes the information I, uh, I seek after is, is necessary, uh, unnecessary information. You know, and, and I believe I've been such an information junkie uh, around my family that my, it's, it's um, falling down on my daughters now. I, w- I was in the living room one day, and I was just sitting there, and my daughter said, Dad, do you know that Louisiana is the only state that starts with an L? And I was like, no, I really haven't sat and contemplated about how many states start with an L. But, you know, little did she know when she left out of the living room, because she just came in to give me that information and then just went back into her room. And, uh, and that's kind of how I am. I, I go up to my wife. I, I say, do you know this, this, and this? And my wife is like, okay, I I really wasn't interested in how much blubber a whale has, you know. And, uh, and but my, little did my daughter know when she went back in the room, I actually Googled it. And, I, and she was right. And she was right. You know, to an information junkie, you know, my mind was blown. You know, that, that was just some more information that I, I, I had in my repertoire. So what I want to do this morning is, uh, since I'm an information junkie, I also love to give, in New Orleans terms, buku, that means a lot, buku information. So what I'm going to try to do this morning is try to convince you that the information that I'm giving is worth your while, that the information that I'm going to give you is information that you actually want. So uh, what I want to do is, First off, I want to I want to read a letter. I want to read a letter because I want to give you information this morning on why the historical setting is important. And I, I believe through this letter we'll understand why the historical setting uh, of a passage is important. On August 29th, 2005, the life of my family changed drastically. We were newlyweds with kids living in the New Orleans area, just starting new horizons in life. Not long after our wedding, we purchased our first home and was having a textbook marriage. However, it all changed once I met Katrina. She was not the small, slender, and quiet type. She was the big, strong, and loud type. She wasn't shy at all. Whenever she was about to show up, you knew it from miles away. Katrina had the power to make a tree do a backbend. Even though I knew the destruction she would cause, I still fell victim to her. I felt so powerless to stop her. 
Everything that we worked for and obtained together, my wife and I, was gone when she showed up. Why would she force herself into my life and cause my wife and I to split? I remained in New Orleans working on a search and rescue team, and my wife and kids moved to Hammond, Louisiana. Being away from my kids was rough on, rough on us in many day, on many days. Katrina was a homewrecker, and she came at a vulnerable time in our marriage. Even though we were newlyweds, and even though Katrina split us up for a time, we realized how much we cared for each other and how much we meant to each other through the devastation that Katrina caused. From what I've, from what I've seen, my household was not the first and only household that Katrina destroyed. She was a true homewrecker, but thanks be to God, we found life after Katrina. Now, why do, you, why do you think the historical setting is important to that letter? 2,000 years from now, that this, this, this brief letter is found, say, in the Middle East. In the Middle East. And they read this letter. The first thing they, that, that was going to come to their mind is that Pastor Troy had an affair on his wife with a woman named Katrina. And she destroyed his life. But the historical setting of this letter is written in what? Modern day New Orleans, Louisiana. And Katrina is Hurricane Katrina that ravaged through the, the Gulf Coast and ravaged through New Orleans. So now when we, when we understand and know the historical setting, we can now properly apply what is written to us. And we have a proper understanding of what is written to us. And I believe in, uh, in Revelations chapter 3, verses 14 through 20, if you have your Bibles turned there, I believe that the only way that we can properly understand that passage is to understand the historical setting. To understand what's going on. I've heard so many passionate pastors, so many passionate Bible teachers fumble over Revelations chapter 3, 14 through 20. And one of the reasons uh, of, of, the, of the pastors struggling to find a proper understanding and proper meaning in this passage is because we do not understand the historical setting. You see, as we go through this, and, and the angel is writing, and John is, 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 is writing this down for us to know, for us to know what, what, what Jesus is dictating to the angel. One of the reasons John isn't explaining the historical setting to us or in, in this letter, because the letter that it was written to, they already understood the historical setting because they were living in it. Just as when I read this letter to someone in New Orleans, Louisiana, or someone in the Gulf Coast region, I really don't have to, uh, I really don't have to explain myself. And the reason why I don't have to explain myself, because they understand the historical setting. So when we read Revelations 3, 14 through 20, uh, we are a modern day people who's following God, who wrote to an ancient people, who wrote to an ancient people. So what we have to understand and what we have to do is we have to take ourselves, we have to catapult out of modern times and place ourselves back into the ancient times so that we can understand what is going on. And then we have to catapult back into modern times to understand how to apply it to our lives. So what we see, um, I'm going to give you some information on what's going on and Revelations 3, 14 through 20. And why is Jesus writing, uh, Jesus speaking some of these words to the Laodiceans? First, I want to go to Colossians chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. You don't have to, um, you don't have to turn there. This is Paul writing to the church at Colossae, writing to the Colossians. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, 
that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, Paul is writing to the Colossian church, but he also lumps in his message uh, in 12, uh, 12 to 13. In this passage, he lumps in the Laodiceans and he lumps in Hierapolis. And what we'll see in Revelations, that this letter that we're going to read in Revelation 3, 14 through 20, is read to the Laodiceans. So, in order to understand what's going on, we have to understand the significance of Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis. And now, what I have a map. We have a map. And I have a map of it. Do we have the slide? Oh, there it is over there. All right. uh, I was looking for it. Look, uh, on this map, you see Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae, they make up the Tri-City area. It's a Tri-City area. This, this area, Hierapolis is, is up towards the left, and Colossae is up towards the right, and Laodicea is, is down more in the valley. So they make up the tri-city area. So Epaphras, Epaphras is a, is a follower of Christ, a, a, a uh, revealer of God's word, and Epaphras is, is, is from that area, and Epaphras is familiar, is familiar with that area, and he's speaking to the churches in that area. So these churches, they have a, uh, a relationship with each other, and that in that area, the gospel, the gospel was being proclaimed and the gospel was spreading in that area. So that's why Paul, when he writes to the Colossians, he lumps in the church at Laodicea and he lumps in the church at Hierapolis. And what we're going to see in, in our, uh, our passage today, the significance of those three cities. So I'm going to give you some information on those three cities. First, Laodicea. Laodicea. I'm going to read something from the, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, which he wrote about Laodicea in his annals. It says, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. In the early 60s AD, there was an earthquake. There was an earthquake that ruined the cities of Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis. There was an earthquake that ruined these three cities. But Laodicea, uh, there was, it was such a prominent place and such a wealthy place, Laodicea, that they didn't require uh, money from the Roman government to rebuild. That they were so wealthy that they were able to rebuild on their own. And they rebuilt the city of Laodicea by their own hands and by their own resources. And they became proud in that. They, they, they began to beat their chest that we don't need assistance, that we are wealthy enough, strong enough, prominent and prosperous enough that we don't need help. But unlike Colossae and Hierapolis, they needed governmental funds. They needed the Roman government to help them build. So we see Laodicea uh, from the jump is a very wealthy place. But how did Laodicea get their wealth? Laodicea was a place that produced a glossy black wool. And this glossy black wool was in high demand. They made garments and that they sold to the Romans and that they, that they sold to the, to the surrounding areas uh, of this glossy black wool. And, and this glossy black wool was in such high demand that it brought prosperity, financial prosperity to the, uh, to the city of Laodicea. And their, their economy began to expand. Their economy began to grow. And as their economy began to grow, large banking systems began to form in Laodicea. They, they, they began to, to create these large banking systems and, and this, this uh, also commercial prosperity and agricultural enterprises from these lucrative banking systems that bought 
uh, that the black wool that they bought in, that it bought to them. So we see that, that Laodicea, the historical setting of Laodicea, Laodicea is a very wealthy and prominent place. They sold the black glossy wool that was in high demand. Agricultural and commercial prosperity uh, brought the lucrative banking system. And, and also Laodicea, within their prosperity, within their wealth, they, uh, they had a very um, prominent medical school that came out of, out of Laodicea. And they created uh, an eye salve. That, um, that healed the eyes of, of various diseases and various ailments um, that, that came, also came out of Laodicea, these, these medical schools. So now, also now, let's dig into Hierapolis. I'm going to give you some information about Hierapolis. And what you see on the screen uh, in Hierapolis, next slide, these are Hot Springs of Hierapolis. Now, for you to, to, to be able to get a better understanding, uh, Hierapolis is known today as Pamukkale. Pamukkale. This area is modern-day Turkey. This area is modern-day Turkey. So Hierapolis is known today as Pamukkale. And what you see on the screen are the hot springs of Hierapolis. Hierapolis was also a prominent place as well as Laodicea. And what brought people to Hierapolis is that these hot springs were so calcium rich that people came in from miles and miles around to bathe in these hot springs. They were bathed in these hot springs because they believed that the calcium rich waters and the warm waters of, of these hot springs would heal their bodies from various ailments. So people would come from all around to come to Hierapolis because of these hot springs. And if you, uh, if you Google Pamukkale, now don't, don't do that right now while I'm preaching, but if you Google Pamukkale and the hot springs of Pamukkale, the hot springs of Hierapolis, you can watch videos of people still going to that area today and bathing and swimming and vacationing in these spots because of the healing power that these hot springs were believed to have. So, now, I want to give you some information on Colise, on the city of Colise. Colise had the Lycus River running through it. And the Lycus River went underground through the city of Colise. And the uh, opposite of the hot springs, eight miles over in Colise, there were cold springs. And these cold springs were a refreshing, uh, were, were refreshing waters that people would come to in the hot summers, and they would they would swim, uh, they would they would drink from that river. They would they would use that river as a, a as a refreshment, as a soothing to the to the uh, to the brutal summers and the hot summers. So now you have that information. What I want to do is I want that information not to just remain information. I want it to be information that, that turns into knowledge, that turns into wisdom. Now, how does information turns into knowledge that turns into wisdom? First of all, it's information. It's just thrown out there. You, you know these things. But it turns into knowledge when you learn how to apply it to the word that you're reading. And it turns into wisdom when you begin to apply that to your life. So as we go through this, I want that information that I get, that I've given you, I want it to turn into knowledge and then turn into wisdom. So I'm going to read Revelation 3, 14 through 20, and then I'm going to go through that passage and break down the three points that I have. Verse, starting at verse 14. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither hot, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I've counseled you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich 
and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may your word come forth. God, may you be glorified today in this service. God, may hearts and lives be forever changed. God, because they have encountered the one and true living God through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My first point I want to bring out is a life that follows Jesus will contextualize the gospel but not compromise the gospel. Verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write. Now, this, this, this opening statement in this letter actually further concludes the need for us knowing the historical setting. Because what the angel is doing, the angel is writing to a specific church. And when the angel is writing to a specific church, he's writing to that church based upon that, that church's situation, based upon the region of that church, and based upon what that church is going through at that time. So what we see is we see, we see Jesus dictating these words to the angel. And he's dictating these words according to the context of the Laodicean church. And if you read the letters, if you read the letters to all of the seven churches, every one of the letters are contextualized according to that church, according to that region, according to the, the specific the specific uh, specifications of that church and the specific things that that church is going through. You see... How many of us have ever had a, a tailor-made suit or tailor-made anything? The, uh, the, that tailor-made suit is, is, is exacted for our specific specifications, you know, for, for our, our curves or kind of my roundness. You know, it, it's made specific for that person. So these letters are written specifically for these churches. So Jesus is conceptualizing his words when he speaks to the church. And I know in Christendom, we've had a, uh, a battle going on with traditionalism and contemporary. And that battle sometimes clashes. When, when you, you have those who, who are steeped in tradition believe that if you contextualize the gospel or you contextualize music, that somehow you're compromising the gospel or somehow you're compromising to the world. And you see, what happens is there's a difference between contextualizing and compromising. Contextualizing changes the method but preserves the message. Compromising changes the message. You see, we, 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 have, we have grown in Christendom to kind of understand or, or, or grown to believe that Christianity has some type of sacred, sacred genre. That there's only one certain genre in Christianity. And we refuse to contextualize according to the uh, according to the society. I can tell you today that that the millennials that are, that are growing up t today that they're not feeling the shirt and the suit and tie. They, 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 they are not feeling the suit and tie. They're not feeling a lot of the traditional uh, methods that we used back in the day. And uh, not wearing a suit and tie in the pulpit is not against the gospel. It's not compromising the gospel. Adding a, 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 a chorus or a contemporary beat to amazing grace is not compromising to the world. It's contextualizing the same message and speaking in a language and communicating to people according to 
their proper context. And we see that in the gospel that Jesus is contextualizing his message to all seven of these churches. And you see, what we have to do today is realize how do I, how do I speak the language of the culture without compromising the gospel? How do I speak the language in order for them to understand and for me, for us to communicate the gospel to the world in a language that they can understand so that the message can be clear to them? How many of us in here uh, can read ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek and Aramaic? Not many of us. You see, it's amazing that that those who refuse to contextualize actually are reading a contextualized Bible when they refuse to contextualize. Because the Bible in English is actually the Bible coming to us in our context, speaking to us in a language that we can understand. So when we refuse to contextualize the gospel, realize that the gospel was actually contextualized for us so we can understand. Second point is a life that follows Jesus knows that his or her life is ever before him. Out of the next stanza, I just want to grab four words from, 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 from my next point in verse 15. I know your works. I know your works. Those four words are beautiful and scary at the same time. Here's why those four words are beautiful and scary at the same time. The angel is writing to the Laodiceans and letting them know with those four words that your entire lives are lived out before Jesus Christ. The beauty of it is that we have a Savior that knows everything that we go through, that sees us, and that our lives are ever before him. The scary part about it is that our lives are ever before him, that every word that we speak, every step that we take, every action that we complete is always before him, is ever before him. If, if we lived our lives in that constant reality, thinking about that constant reality, wouldn't that change the way we walk? Wouldn't that change the way we live? How many of you woke up this morning and, and said to yourself that my life today is ever before Christ? I didn't, I didn't consciously wake up, woke up this morning with that on my mind. I woke up this morning and thought about my daily schedule, what I, what, what I had to do, the, the increments of my life, uh, of, my, of my daily schedule. But how serious, more serious would our lives be if we understood and, and consciously and intentionally thought about the fact, the reality that our lives are ever before Jesus Christ. With me just saying that, just saying that, you know, brings a, a, a total, a, a totally different mindset of how I live my life. That our lives are ever before Christ. Matthew 12, 36 assures us that we will be held accountable for all that we say, all that we do in our lives. Now, we don't live in light of that reality for it to paralyze us that we, we're, we're now afraid to move, afraid to fail. You know, we don't live in that reality for that purpose. We live in that reality for us to stay rooted in Jesus Christ. We live in that reality that our lives are ever before him, that we do not get outside of his will. And that we are always, we're intentionally and always guided by his Holy Spirit each and every moment of our lives. And you see, that present and future reality of our lives being ever before him should lead us to my last point. And my last point is this. That a life, a life 
that follows Jesus positions himself or herself to be useful for him. Revelation three fourteen through 20. Now, all of the information that I gave you, I'm going to put it in light of these scriptures. Verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus is called the amen in this verse because Jesus is the affirmation of everything who God is. He is God's affirmation. He, he, is, he is God's visible attribute, attributes. And what we see that, that God used Jesus to create everything that we see. That through Jesus, all that we see, all that we know has been created through Jesus. And what we also see, we see the angel being used by God to write down the letter. So, so we, see, we see two different beings being used in two different ways, being useful for God. The angel underneath the commands of Jesus Christ writing down the words of Jesus. And we see Jesus being used by God to create, to create all that we see. Now, that is going to contrast the lives of the Laodiceans at this point. We see two human beings, we, we see two beings being useful. And then what we're going to see, the contrast life of the Laodiceans in verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold, either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That is a familiar passage. We've heard that. We've all heard that passage. And the traditional view of that passage is that Jesus will rather you either good or he will rather you bad. That's the, that's the view of that passage. And the reason why the traditional view in that passage, we've been holding on to that for so long because we really don't understand the historical context of this passage. When Jesus is saying how I wish you were cold, or hot, he's not wishing that you would just say, just outright denounce him and then stand ten toes down within him. If Jesus' desire is that none of us perish and that we all come to the saving knowledge of him, how could he now wish that we would reject him? You see, when, when Jesus is telling the Laodiceans, I wish you were hot or cold, He's talking about the hot springs of Hierapolis and the cold springs of Colossae. Jesus is saying, oh, how I wish you were useful. If you were hot, I could use you in a therapeutic way like the hot springs of Hierapolis. If you were cold, I could use you in a refreshing way like the cold springs of Colossae. But you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm, so I will spew you or spit you out of my mouth. Now, what's, what, 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 is he, what does he mean that you're lukewarm? You have hot springs. You have cold springs. Hierapolis and Colossae are up here. Laodicea is down here. As those hot springs cascade down the mountain, as those cold springs go down from Colossae, they meet up in Laodicea. And what happens when hot and cold meets up? It becomes warm. You see, the hot springs in Hierapolis, the, the temperature kept bacteria out. The cold springs in Colossae, the temperature kept bacteria out. But by the time they got down to Laodicea, the waters were muddy and full of bacteria. And those waters in Laodicea were worth nothing. So Jesus is saying, I wish you were useful for something. But the position that you're in right now, you're not useful for anything. But to be spewed out of my mouth. So a life that follows Jesus is a life that puts its, positions itself to be useful by God. And what we see, now we see in verse 16, 
When he says, you're you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He transitions in verse 17 and, and he lets the Laodiceans know how they got that way. How they got to the, the position of being lukewarm. Because we have to understand that this is a prominent place. This is a, a, a very wealthy church. This church has, has, has benefited off of the society. The, 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 the wealth of the society has now benefited this church. And Jesus is letting them know how they got there. He said, for you say I am rich, I have, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is contrasting everything in the society of the uh, Laodiceans to them. Because what's happening now within their wealth and their prosperity, they're no longer dependent on Christ. They're now depending on the things that they have. They're now depending on their economy. They're not depending on the words of God anymore and being followed by his spirit. He said, you say I am rich and have prospered and I need nothing. Remember the letter we wrote? I, I, I told you that, that, that uh, Tacitus wrote that the Laodiceans, they were bragging about their prosperity, how, how they didn't need assistance to rebuild that they rebuilt on themselves not only did they reject government assistance they rejected the assistance of Jesus Christ as well now I don't want you to hear me say that financial wealth is evil and that we shouldn't be ambitious to prosper I don't want you to hear me say that but it is evil when that prosperity becomes your God. It's evil when those things have you and take you away from our God. He says that you, you are, you are prosperous. You say, I need nothing. He said, you're wretched. You're pitiable. He said, you're poor. <laughs> Jesus is letting the, the, the Laodiceans know that no matter how much financial prosperity you have you're poor whenever you're spiritually bankrupt when you're spiritually bankrupt in the eyes of our messiah and our king you have nothing you have nothing he said you're poor you're blind now he's contrasting you see everybody went to Laodicea that was struggling with a physical eyesight ailment they went to Laodicea to receive that eye salve and that ointment from their medical schools and Jesus is, is letting them know that that you're fixing the physical sight of everyone else but yet you remain spiritually blind you remain spiritually blind and he said and you're naked you're naked even though you're producing these beautiful garments that are in high demand, you're still naked before me. Because remember what the first point was? The second point? Our lives are ever before him. You can dress up in all of the finest linens, but Jesus sees your heart. He's letting Laodicea know, I see your heart. I know who you are. And he says, in verse 18, I'll counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so you, you, so you may see. The quickest way for us to, be, to render ourselves useless and to be lukewarm is to do the opposite of what Jesus has said in verse 18. He said, I counsel you. You see, sometimes we, we, we can get so much in our lives that we no longer, we no longer hold to the counsel of God. We now come to a, a place of prominence that we become our own wisdom. We become our own guidance and we, we no longer are guided by the Holy Spirit. But on the opposite end, we can get so low 
or, or believe that that life is so bad and that things aren't happening the way we want them to happen that we no longer counsel with God as well. And we say, you know what? I need to take over the helm, the, the helm of my life. Things aren't turning out the way I want them to turn out, so I need to take over now. Or things have happened so well and, and so I've been so prosperous in my life that we somehow believe that we did it on our own. And we no longer depend on the counsel of God. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, there's also an argument in this passage whether the Laodiceans were true Christians or not. I believe that, they, that the Laodiceans are true Christians. And they, they, they've come to a, a, a place of complacency in their lives. And verse 19 and 20, uh, to me, solidifies that they are true Christians. Because Jesus says, to them, those whom, I those whom I love, I discipline. You see, the Laodiceans have fallen away. They have fallen back from putting their faith and their trust in Christ because of their prosperity. And now Christ is letting them know, those whom I, I love, I discipline. He's allowing, he's letting the Laodiceans know that I love you. And that since I love you, I will discipline you. You see, what I want us to do is, I want us to look at Christ, look at our Heavenly Father, and look at Christ. I want us to look at them not as a, a boss to employee or a government body to its citizens. I want us to look at Christ as, as a loving Father speaking to His children. In verse 19, when, when Jesus is saying, those whom I discipline, I love. How many of us, when we were young, uh, our father said, if you do it again, we're going behind the woodshed. If you don't listen, then you know what? I'm taking you behind the woodshed and putting something on your, on your bottom. That's what Jesus is speaking to the Laodiceans right here. He says, I love you. I love you. And those whom I love... I discipline. Now, now, they're not in a state where he's going to discipline them right at that moment. But Jesus is saying, if you don't repent and come back to me, then I have no choice but to discipline you. In verse 20, he says, so be zealous and repent. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come, in, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, at the beginning of this passage, we see that Jesus is the creator of all things. So now, I want you to have this mental picture of the, of the person who created everything that we see. The person who created the home, who had the power to knock the home down at his word, is standing at the door and knocking. That seems foreign to us. You see, a lot of times we read this passage and we make Jesus out to be a homeless beggar standing outside of the door begging for friends. And a lot of times we have in our mind, well, let me open the door for Jesus and, and, and then rub him and pat him on his head. Oh, poor Jesus, you're standing out, of the door, out at the door and you're lonely. And you're lonely and I need to come out and be your friend. Really and truly, you know who's standing and knocking at the door? The creator of the universe. The one who can end our lives at, this, at the speaking of his word. But what he'd rather do is, he'd rather deal with his children like a loving father. 
And he's saying that I want your lives to be in a position that you are useful. So I'm standing at the door and knocking. My goal is not to destroy you. My goal is not to condemn you. My goal is to work in you, work through you, and work for you. And I stand at the door and knock. I am a loving father. You are my children. And my discipline towards you will only be to bring you back to myself. You see, I didn't understand at first how God could not be tempted, how God could not sin. You know, my mindset was, well, God can't sin because he's God. I understand that, you know, what well, well, he's God. And, and I, 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 I started to contemplate, you know, why can't God be tempted? Why can't God sin? And, and why do I sin, you know, and why do I fall away from God? And uh, I realized that there's a word, it's called aseity. The aseity of God. As, as, I, as I struggled and, and as I prayed and, 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 and God revealed this to me. He revealed to me about his aseity. Aseity means to be self-sufficient. Meaning uh, that your existence is not based upon anything outside of you. And everything that you need, everything that you are, is in you. And nothing on the outside of you affects you, affects your existence, affects who you are, affects you in any type of way. And I realized the reason God cannot be tempted by other relationships is because he's satisfied in a relationship of himself with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's satisfied within himself. He's self-sufficient in his relationships. The reason why God can't be tempted by money because he doesn't need money to live or to exist. The reason why he can't be tempted by food is because he doesn't need to eat in order to exist and in order to have his being. So nothing can, can, can tempt God because God is self-sufficient in himself. So how do I become, how do I become self-sufficient in God? I become self-sufficient in God when I fall in love with him and place myself in him and realize that nothing outside of him can satisfy me. The relationships that I have in him are satisfactory relationships, are all the relationships that I need, the relationships that I have in him, the provisions that I have in him, all the, provi all the provisions that I need, that I don't go outside of him for anything that I need because I am self-sufficient in him. And today, I want to ask the question, are you self-sufficient in Christ? Are you living and basting in the glory of God's aseity? Are you saying to yourself, are you living a life that everything that you need, everything that you are, is in Christ? And that you don't need to go outside of him to receive anything. Your identity is in him. Your provision is in him. The totality of your being is in him. The strength you need is in him. If not, he says, he stands at the door and knocks. He's a loving father. Place yourself in him. Position, position yourself to be useful. And a lot of times, you know what we believe? We believe that we have to have this, this grandiose strategy and plan in order for us to be used by God. There's times where all we just have to do is surrender and make ourselves available. Surrender and make ourselves available. I wrote a letter 
to contextualize this message to North Star Church. The letter reads, To the angel of North Star Church write, I am Alpha and Omega. I am the God who holds the waters of the earth in the palm of my hand. I see your works. I know that you are small in number. I know that you are in a city that's in a nation that's rooted in a world that doesn't seek the purity of righteousness. But in me, your impact can and will be big. For I am a big God. Position yourself to be useful so I can use you in a mighty way. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for you who you are. God, we thank you that you deal with us as a loving father. God, we thank you that you always, you always want the best and the most usefulness from your children. God, and we thank you for that. God, we thank you that you have given us this time, this day, this moment, God, to repent from the things that we have placed above you. God, and I pray in Jesus' name that your Holy Spirit will move on the hearts and the minds of those who are here today. And they would say, this is not just another Sunday morning at North Star Church, but this is a Sunday morning that I will position myself to be used mighty by God, that I will surrender everything, my total being my life to him that my life is in his hands that my heart will sing the song nothing in my hands I bring but simply to the cross I cling God as the worship leaders begin to to lead in song and give praise to you through song God I pray that the one who doesn't know you God will come and place his life in your hands. God, that your Holy Spirit would prick him at his heart and that he would ask, what must I do to be saved? God, as these altars are open, God, I pray those who have become complacent in the things that they have or complacent in the things that they don't have and have moved away from you. God, I pray that they will come down to these altars, God bow their faces to you, God, and give their lives, lives over to you wholly, fully, that you may use them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.